0: Welcome to New Books and World Affairs, and this is your host, Christian Peterson. And today I have the good fortune of speaking with Vikan Chaterian about his new book, Open Wounds, Armenians, Turks, and a Century of Genocide, which is put out by Oxford University Press. Viken Chaterian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. No problem. It's my pleasure. Uh, before we begin, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about your background And what got you into writing this book? Yes, sure. Um, So I'm talking to you
1: now from uh, a village in the Swiss Alps. I live in Geneva, where I teach international relations. Um, Originally, I'm born in Beirut, Lebanon. I'm Lebanese-Armenian. I grew up in Lebanon during the, the war there, the 15 years of war. So um, from early on, I was very uh, conscious about wars, about violence, about uh, deportations and genocide from my family uh, stories. Um, And uh, later on, uh, I did my bachelor at the American University of Beirut. I studied literature. And after graduating, I worked as a journalist, first in Beirut covering Lebanon and the Middle East. And later, I uh, focused on uh, post-Soviet developments uh, by going to Yerevan, Armenia, and covering um, the developments in the South Caucasus and the North Caucasus in the period immediately after the collapse of USSR. And um, this experience was the raw material, of my doctoral dissertation, uh, later published uh, as a book uh, under the title, War and Peace in the Caucasus, Russia's Troubled Frontier. In the States, it was published uh, by Columbia University Press. Uh, The book basically argues why we had uh, so many conflicts in the Caucasus in the period of the Soviet collapse. Uh, I have also worked in uh, peace building projects uh, by bringing together journalists from different parts of the Caucasus, as well as in Central Asia and the Middle East. Uh, and after that, I moved to academic career. That's what I do now.
0: Okay, that sounds great. That's an, that's an interesting background. And what struck me about this book is how timely this issue is, um, being uh, the 100-year anniversary and you you begin the book by talking about someone named if I'm pronouncing the name correct Harant uh, Her- Dink, yes. And I was wondering how you could you, if you could explain to the listeners how you use that as a way to uh, get into the book and, and pose some of the the questions that you you address.
1: Harant Dink is a central figure um, in my uh, narration in my book, and this is so because hrant uh, was an Armenian-Turkish journalist working in Istanbul, um, and he was assassinated in early 2007. And I start the book with asking why was he assassinated. And it's kind of the introduction that brings me to, to, to my uh, central topic, which is why the issue of Armenians, the Armenian Genocide, but also the history of Ottoman Armenians before the genocide was long time forgotten, erased from memory in Turkey. For nearly nine decades, this was a non-issue. It was completely forgotten. And then in the last 10, 15 years, the memory, the um, the issue of the Armenians came back to public attention in Turkey. And each each year, we we discover more and more books being written, um, people working on this issue, doing research. Many young uh, students in Turkey are doing their doctoral dissertation in connection with uh, the forgotten Armenian past, in different fields, from people like studying Ottoman music and discovering that Armenians had enormous contribution in this, in this field, mm. or architecture, or whatever—it's—it's it's not just you know politics and, and art history. And in this process of bringing memory back, Franz Ding had a central role, because basically he is the first Armenian. Since 1915, since the genocide, who claimed uh, to have uh, a place uh, in public sphere as an Armenian. So in Turkey, we had many Armenians, even after the, ge- the genocide, who had a public role. You know, they were active in politics, uh, often member of the Turkish leftist parties and so on. But all these people before Hrant were active not as Armenians, but as Turks. Very often they even changed their names so that no one discovers their ethnic background and their Armenian roots. Hrant was different. Hrant claimed, demanded, that uh, the Turkish public listens to him as an Armenian. And he, uh, uh, in, in a very popular, in a very kind of, down-to-earth manner, he addressed um, the average Turk, the average Turkish citizen, and to his conscience. And he asked a very simple question. He asked, brother, sister, uh, some decades back, there were Armenians living here. We see the ruins of their churches. We see the ruins of their schools. They are not here. What happened to them? Why, Why did they leave? And he was assassinated because he posed these kind of questions. So, Harant is a, is a central figure uh, in bringing this memory back and this debate back to Turkey. And as a result, he's a central figure in my book.
0: Yeah, it's a very it's a very effective opening to you, as it grabs the reader's attention and it, it helps you propel the narrative forward. And I, I like the transition that you used um, to kind of to raise the question of the history of the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire and then during the reform period of the Young Turks and then under the Turkish Republic. So I think the best way to go now is to give the listeners maybe a brief history of the experience of Armenians living in the Ottoman Empire.
1: Um, The the Armenians um, basically went through different stages, but the Armenian question as part of the Uh, Oriental question um, kind of rose in the late 19th century. More specifically, um, Armenians, as well as other uh, population groups in the Ottoman Empire, um, were very much um, kind of mobilized as a result of sultans promising reforms. This is uh, the age of the Tanzimat. Uh, The reorganization of the Ottoman Empire because the Ottomans realized that the empire was in decline, that it was not anymore uh, the power it used to be. Militarily, it was um, unable to compete with European powers, and economically, technologically, in all fields of civilization, they were left behind. So, this uh, uh, kind of um, understanding that the sultans had in early 19th century led to three major reform packages being introduced. So those reforms promised, among others, um, equal rights and protection uh, in front of law to all citizens. So no, no distinction was to be made from the perspective of the state whether a citizen was Christian, Muslim, Jewish, and so on. The problem is that uh, those promises of reforms were never uh, applied in reality. Uh, And as a result, we have uh, tensions um, raising within the society. On the one hand, Armenians, Greeks, and other groups uh, expecting reforms, while on the other hand, we have other groups Uh, fearing reforms, especially the Muslim elites fearing that they will lose their uh, dominant position. On top of this, we have uh, European powers uh, increasingly interfering uh, into the internal affairs of the Ottoman Empire. And in case we want to to pick up one uh, historical moment uh, to symbolize this, it's the 1878 Berlin conference and the treaty that emerged afterwards uh, which demanded the Ottomans to introduce specific reforms concerning the Armenians in the eastern provinces, um, including reforms to safeguard their security and uh, the, the, the well-being of, of, of their communities. Uh, for the young, young sultan uh, who just who had just arrived uh, to power at the time, Abdul Hamid II, he saw this European uh, kind of demand to introduce reforms as uh, a threat. And he started progressively uh, seeing the Armenians, as well as other uh, religious minorities, as a threat to the territorial integrity of the the empire. So the Armenian question um, and kind of The the Ottoman state targeting the Armenians as such starts from that period. And later in 1890s, we have series of massacres, anti-Armenian massacres, during the the reign of Abdul Hamid II, in which probably up to 200,000 Armenians were were killed as a result. Uh, So progressively, the Armenians are seen not as loyal uh, nation as they were described in early 19th century. Uh, very much uh, part of the uh, tissue of the uh, Ottoman society but more and more they were seen as a threat by the state um, as a result of the combined uh, elements I just described
0: yeah it's 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 interesting points you make Uh, I was only partially aware of uh, the high level of violence in the Ottoman Empire against uh, minorities and Christians in particular Uh, I somehow missed it in my my graduate schooling. I mean, I knew bits and pieces, but for instance, the reactions against the Greeks in the 1820s, uh, all the way up into the Armenians, it uh, it raises questions about uh, you know the nature of imperial of non Western imperialism. I guess I would say so. From that angle, I think even specialists will will get a lot out of out of reading it beyond uh, what general readers get uh, get from it. But I mean, as you point out in the book, then you have the era of the Young Turks and World War One, and I guess that leads to the genocide. So I was wondering if you could say more about this period uh, between 1908 and uh, into World War One. I. I mean, before before coming to World War One, I, I want to to
1: react to what you just said. That uh, in spite of your interest in history, you had missed this um, violence uh, that the Ottoman state. Exercised on its minorities, um, I have also come across uh, a number of uh, occasions, including discussing with Turks, you know, Turkish intellectuals, who uh, did not know about the Armenian massacres, about the genocide, about what happened to you know one segment of their own uh, population, and I would say that uh, this uh, oblivion, this this uh, kind of silencing. Um, this very black page of history is not uh, accidental it's it's not it was it was kind of uh planned you know it's part of the official Turkish policy to negate the armenian genocide by silencing it. This was the first kind of uh, um, attempt uh, turkey to to put an end to the question of the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire and but also Western uh, states who during the the first world war during the genocide itself uh, had insisted that those responsible of the massacres and deportations will be put uh, to trial but later mm-hmm. uh, with the rise of Kemalism in Turkey, uh, they kind of uh, preferred to do business with this power in the East, rather than to confront Turkey with its crimes. So uh, as a result, we have a long century during which uh, I think this very important page in uh, in modern history was marginalized. Um, Now now to come back to First World War, what we have is that uh, in 1908, we have a revolution in Turkey. And this is also very important, because it's one of the modern uh, revolutions during which um, the Young Turks, the Committee of Union and Progress, overthrows the the Sultan Abdul Hamid II and takes power. Um, And it's it's very interesting to see that um, the Young Turks, the, the, the CUP, the Committee of Union and Progress, they come from um, officers, they come from army circles, or um, they are graduates of the medical institute uh, recently established in Istanbul. And basically, they are the upper class uh, Ottoman officials who fear that they will lose the empire. And they will. as a result, they will lose their dominant social position. So the the objective of the 1908 revolution is to save the empire. And um, initially, Armenian revolutionary groups had collaborated with the young Turks in 1908 revolution. And for example, the Armenian Revolutionary Federation uh, goes on collaborating with them even after 1909 massacre in Adana, in southern Turkey. Yet this collaboration doesn't uh, kind, of, kind of dampen the relations. And um, we have radicalization process taking place within the CUP in power, especially after the Balkan Wars in 1913, when the Ottoman Empire loses much of the provinces still under its control in, in European uh, parts of the empire. and. Um, CUP finds that the First World War is a great opportunity to take its revenge, to regain the lost territories in the Balkans, and even to uh, reshape the empire. Instead of being um, an Ottoman Empire based on uh, religious solidarity, they imagine to build a new empire based on Turkic... uh, imagined national identity, which they imagine to spread it eastwards uh, in the Caucasus and up to Central Asia, where Turkic peoples uh, were under Russian rule at the time. And uh, basically, Ottoman Empire jumps into this war. They, They were not part of the war. They could have chosen to stay neutral and save the empire. But the young Turks, with their uh, ideological uh, indoctrination and and positions, they take the risk, hoping that they will uh, um, recreate a new base for the empire, and as a result, uh, at the end of the war, they they, they lose the empire. In the meanwhile, uh, they use the war as an opportunity to get rid of elements, populations that they think uh, will not be possible to assimilate in the new uh, nation-building process, and those uh, population groups are uh, Christian, Christian populations, Greeks. Uh, so we start uh, with deporting the Greeks uh, even before the war, nineteen thirteen and nineteen fourteen. Uh, And then we have uh, genocidal deportations and massacres of Armenians, as well as of of Assyrians, starting in 1915. So basically, the entire Armenian population of the empire, with the exception of uh, Istanbul and Izmir, uh, are deported to the Syrian desert. And um, in some cases, especially in the eastern provinces, uh, they are basically massacred once they are taken out of their villages and towns. Uh, The rest of the population are uh, uh, forced to to walk uh, in the heat of the summer of 1915 up to Deir ez-Zor in Syria today, where there is a war going on. And um, at least half the deportees die on the way because of massacres, because of deprivation, because of lack of food, because of uh, exhaustion. And then in 1916, we have uh, a new wave of massacres of those who survived the, the forced marches in the Zor itself, so in um, February, March, uh, 19, uh 1916, we have several hundred thousand killed in Deir zor itself. Um, mm-hmm. We have, uh, at the end of the war, um, something like 300,000 Armenians surviving um, in what is now Syria and Iraq and Turkey, plus the population of Izmir. But there, uh, at the end of the War of Liberation, 1922, uh, Kemalist forces uh, burned Armenian and the Greek quarters. And as a re- as a result, the Armenians and the Greeks are forced uh, to flee. So at the end of this cycle of, uh, of violence, we have Armenians surviving only in Istanbul, plus in eastern provinces. But in the eastern provinces, they are forced to convert to Islam. They are Turkified, but mostly they are Kurdified. So Armenians become Kurdish
0: and Muslim. Yeah, that's an interesting part of the book as well. How you explain uh, the role of uh, the Kurds in, in, in the entire history of uh, Armenian relations in the Ottoman Empire and in the Turkish Republic, and you can we can say more about that now or later. But what's also interesting is the fact that during the deportations and even after, there's forced conversion. There's rapes, there's people being forced uh, into families, women abducted, children abducted. There's a whole interesting issue of identity that comes out that, that, for lack of a better word, is not just the act of deportation, but something that you bring up in the book that amounts to cultural genocide in a way.
1: Yes, indeed. There are ma- many books uh, published recently by Taner by Fuad Dundar, that uh, showed that uh, the Committee of Union and Progress had uh, demographics in their mind uh, when they elaborated the plans of deportations and massacres. Their thinking was that those uh, Christian Armenians, uh, Christian Assyrians uh, will not be uh, assimilated into this uh, future uh, empire dominated by uh, this new nation they are imagining. They, so they want to create a new Turkic empire, and they think that they can assimilate uh, Muslim uh, populations in, into their project. So they imagine that uh, Muslim Albanians, Muslim Kurds, uh, Muslim Caucasians, Cherkes, Chechens, uh, even Muslim Arabs uh, will eventually kind of be assimilated in this new project but they think that Christian Armenians, Greeks, Assyrians uh, will not be possible to assimilate unless they reduce their uh, kind of uh, concentration uh, down to 10% in each province, and later they even shift this, this to 5%. So the massacres and deportations uh, are, uh, are done out of this kind of uh, very modernist way of imagining, uh, you know, uh, building a nation state, using statistics, using demographic uh, kind of uh, givens and so on. So, uh, yeah, that's that's quite interesting.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And the next interesting part of your, your book, uh, in, in, a part, in a book that has very many interesting parts, is how. Uh K- Kamil uh Mustafa Ataturk shaped the narrative behind uh the explanations for the the plight of the Armenians uh during during World War One and, and into the nineteen twenties. In other words, how he framed the founding of the Turkish Republic really plays a strong role in, in what happens next in, in the story of the of the Turkish attitude toward genocide. Uh yes,
1: even even before Mustafa Kemal, uh, we have similar attitude in, in the period of Abdul Hamid II during the massacres. Mm-hmm. And then Mustafa Kemal kind of takes all over that narrative and it's part uh, of the official Turkish uh, narrative today, uh, although that's evolving and we can come back to that. But yeah. the dominant narrative uh, during the Turkish Republic Uh, has been that uh, first trying to silence uh, the presence, the past uh, history of uh, those populations that were destroyed during the First World War. So to erase their memory, to change names of rivers, mountains, villages, to convert their churches, to make them mosques or, or to destroy them, uh, to convert survivors to 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 force um, a new identity on them, um, and when it is not possible to silence their uh, existence, then to accuse the victims to be uh, <laughs> responsible for what happened to them by accusing entire populations of having betrayed the state, uh, of having collaborated with uh, colonialist powers, um, Russian enemy, British enemy, French enemy. And as a result, uh, the Ottoman and later the Turkish state having no choice but to dislocate um, those dangerous populations for the safety of, uh, of the state, of the army, and of the public good. So th- this is the narrative. So uh, it's, it's their fault. It, basically, it says nothing happened, and then it's their fault.
0: Yeah, and, and the the Western imperialist link is used very conveniently to to justify uh, the violence. Uh, it seemingly it's it's it, it fits right into this mold that we've been victims of Western aggression, and that's used. And I would imagine. I mean I'm not imagining you, you you make the point very clear that a lot of, of Turks bought that argument as far as justifying the plight of the Armenians uh
1: yes this this is a major uh, kind of uh, discourse that evolved in the Ottoman Empire in the nineteenth century. Uh, Mustafa Kemal took over, and even we find a similar attitude in the discourse of uh, of Erdogan today, the, the Turkish president which says mm-hmm. that um, we are anti-imperialist that uh, European imperialist powers are our enemies, so there's this kind of Huntingtonian um, polarization between us, uh, the Muslims, the Turks, and the others the Europeans, the Christians, the Westerners, and so on uh, although when we look at history, you know, this kind of polarized narratives uh, have no ground. The Ottoman Empire survived the 19th century uh, thanks to the intervention of a number of uh, Western European Christian empires. Uh, uh, Let's not forget that during the (laughs) Crimea War, uh, the British, the French, uh, they they, they fought the Russian Empire in defense of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, We have other examples when uh, Muhammad Ali of uh, the, the the ruler of Egypt, when he challenged the empire and his forces were marching uh, to, towards uh, Istanbul, it was European uh, intervention that saved the empire. Um, and later on, during the First World War, you know, when uh, when the, at the end of the war the Ottoman Empire collapsed, uh, we should not forget that the Ottomans chose to. To, to be part of this uh, European civil war by choosing the side of the Germans, so there too there's no polarization between us the or, uh, the, 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 the easterners the orientals the muslims and and uh, you know the others the europeans the christians uh, even today uh, we should not forget that Turkey is uh, a close ally of uh, you know of the west you know Turkey is yeah. a member of nato there's NATO uh, airbase in, in southern Turkey, in Incirlik, near Adana. So, on the one hand, we have this anti-imperialist discourse going on, uh, coming out from uh, an empire itself. Ottoman Empire was an empire. Uh, so it's, it's very curious that you know, people uh, buy this, this discourse of, of uh, Ottoman Empire in the past and Turkey of today.
0: Yeah, and you raised two other issues related to World War One that I don't think are that well known. Uh, the first one being the German role in the genocide and the quote-unquote Woodrow Wilson's Armenia. I don't think a lot of people are very familiar with those uh, episodes. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about those. Yes, um,
1: Germany has um, direct responsibility in what happened in the Ottoman Empire during the First World War not only because um, the Ottomans were uh, in alliance with the Germans, but also because the um, Ottoman army was placed under German command. And there were thousands of German officers and soldiers present uh, in all levels uh, of the Ottoman forces. So um, uh, in case uh, you know Germany, uh, on the political level, but also on the, local, uh, on, on the level of local military commanders, they had wanted to, uh, to stop this genocide from happening. They had all the means to do so. Uh, but they did not. On the contrary, they considered that this was uh, something positive, uh, because Germany had developed um, anti-Armenian stereotypes at the moment uh, of the First World War. And they considered the Armenians to be uh, you know, negative for their projects in the, in the Orient. Uh, even there are episodes where German officers um, participated directly in, in some of the operations taking place. For example, uh, the Armenians did not have the opportunity to, to resist in many cases, but they, they did show resistance. In, in some, one of them was in Urfa, a city in southern Turkey today. The, the local Armenian community, uh, because of, of their geographic position, they saw the deportees uh, being pushed down the Syrian desert, passing near their city. And they understood what was happening. And as a result, they decided to resist. And when orders for deportation arrived, They uh, refused and they they, uh, reinforced their neighborhood and they resisted. They managed to um, push away the Ottoman army that that tried to break into their neighborhood. And then the Ottoman army um, demanded uh, German officers to help them. And specifically by using artillery, they pulverized the Armenian resistance and they massacred uh, the Urfa-Armenian population and deported them. So we have um, this chapter, which I think is is very important, because uh, as we know, later Germany um, in the 1930s uh, became, came under the influence of uh, very strong nationalist currents. The Nazis came to power and eventually they perpetrated Uh, the most horrific of genocides in Europe. And uh, so we have only few uh, studies looking at uh, possible continuities between German role in the First World War, in the Ottoman Empire, and uh, lessons learned by German nationalists uh, and later uh, how this was uh, kind of um, put into practice in, in Europe itself. Um now coming to your second point on uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, in fact um at the end of the war uh, during the, the peace conference in 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 in, uh, in France, um the question of the future of Armenians uh, was put aside uh, to a specific conference which took place in in, in Sevres. Uh, a suburb of Paris, uh, as a result there's the, the Treaty of Sevres in which it was decided that uh, an Armenian homeland was to be created where the the survivors of the deportations were going to to be repatriated uh, uh, where they they, they, they they could have their own statehood and uh, the task of deciding uh, the boundary of this new state and specifically the border between this future armenia and turkey was uh, was given to Woodrow Wilson uh, so there's a wilsonian armenia with a very detailed map uh, defining the border between what was going to be armenia and uh, the future turkish republic but the revolt led by Mustafa Kemal and his victory the victory of uh, the nationalists again in Turkey uh, overthrew those plans and the possibility of creating um, this this uh, unified Armenia uh, as the homeland of the survivors of the genocide.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how the how that plays out and uh, never never comes to fruition. But it it becomes a rallying cry for many Armenians as far as a vision of what what could be fought for potentially down the line. And that's a that's another interesting part of your book. But you, the point you made about Germany, I think, is very interesting. I think there's probably a very good dissertation there. In that question about the relationship between you know, Nazi policies and the experience uh, in Arme- or with Armenians during World War I. And you bring up an issue that I'd heard little bits about, but I'd never read in depth details about a speech that Hitler gave about the, uh, the role of the Armenians and his uh, way of thinking about how to handle the Jews. I was wondering if you could say a little more about the controversies involved in that uh, speech.
1: Yes, there's a controversy about um, a Hitler speech uh, given uh, from his uh, summer house in Bavaria to high-level um, military uh, officers uh, just just days before uh, Nazi Germany invaded Poland. And so th- this is a long speech, uh, you know, over, over, over a few hours, first in the morning and then and then in the afternoon. And what concerns the the Armenian case, Hitler says to his officers, uh, don't worry about uh, committing massacres. Um, Eventually, history will judge whether you are victorious or whether you you are going to lose. And he says, uh, who remembers the Armenians today? Um, And there's a whole debate whether uh, this phrase was was said by hitler or not um, there is no official uh, notes of hitler's speech uh, you no know, th- th- there are no official records about it there are three uh, records which were taken by by different officials in secret and in in one of the three we have this quote and as a result there's a whole debate whether Hitler did pronounce uh, this this phrase or not? Now, what is more important is that the Nazis were very conscious about uh, how Young Turks had exterminated Armenians and Greeks, and uh, basically they took this to be the force of Turkish nationalism. And in the 1920s, when Germany was in disarray, in in chaotic situation. German nationalists uh, dreamed to to be strong enough to uh, uh, fight against the Treaty of Versailles, and to uh, kind of uh, imply the same kind of violence and purification, as they would call it, to minorities of Germany itself. And and as a result of uh, this violence, create this pure Aryan nation that they imagined. In fact, recently, there there are a number of books uh, looking at this um, interrelation between um, the, um, the Turkish experience, the young Turks, and specifically the, the Kemalist experience, and how Nazis look, looked at them. For example, there's a 2014 book uh, authored by Stefan Ehrig, Atatürk in the Nazi Imagination, published by Harvard University Press, looks how the Nazis in the 20s uh, took uh, Turkey, and specifically Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, as their role model, as the model of the Fuhrer. And he has one chapter uh, specifically looking at how Nazis uh, debated, discussed, wrote about um the turkish ex, uh, example with uh the minorities the greek and armenian minorities and there are other books as well um you know recently published about this topic
0: yeah i'm not i'm not sure that book would play that well in turkey from what, from what i can um, gather there,
1: there's a turkish pub, uh, translation recently published so it's, it's really? available
0: yeah well that's good that's good to hear and it, it's it's interesting i wasn't aware of that book i'm glad you mentioned it and It leads into the next area where your book uh, does a fine job of describing events, how various people tried to raise international awareness of this issue. And uh, we'll, we'll come back to how the Turkish view evolves of this. But in order to break the silence, you have the efforts of Armenians. You have the efforts of people in the West, including one of the be, uh, good parts of your book is uh, one of the better ones, I, I would even argue, is the fact you you bring out the idea of scholarship, how historians and various activists tried the, the problems of trying to raise awareness. And then the people who actually lived in uh, the Turkish Republic tried to bring awareness to this. And I was wondering if you could say more, perhaps, about this topic, perhaps starting with the Armenians. Themselves, and I'm thinking of Armenians as a as a as a transnational community, both in the Turkish borders and outside.
1: I mean, before the Armenians, even during the First World War, uh, there was tremendous effort to document what was happening. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Many many people realized the importance of uh, of you know a state um, targeting part of its population uh, by by this kind of mass violence. And we have, even in Germany, we have uh, Johannes Lepsius who documented um, the the atrocities and he lobbied um, um, with German politicians so that they intervene and uh, stop the the, the massacres and deportations, although without success. In in England, in Britain, uh, we have uh, an official commission. Which um, creates uh, um, a commission of historians. Uh, the young Arnold Toynbee, the famous historian, is yeah. in charge, and he publishes the the Blue Book uh, in 1916, based on uh, eyewitness uh, testimonies, and um, and as a result, we have uh, enormous documentation, uh, and and we know what happened. Uh, even as early as 1916, um, back then. But then we have, in 1919, 1920, the Istanbul trials, where after the war, when the, the, the Committee of Union and Progress uh, escapes from power in 1918, uh, at the end of the war, we have the, the, the liberals coming to power, and they want to bring uh, the war criminals in front of justice. And they, they organize a series of trials. Uh, and there, too, we have um, mm. eyewitness accounts, testimonies, and, and so on. So even in Turkey, we have very rich material. And, of course, the Armenians themselves uh, did enormous effort of documentation going back to the days of the First World War. Uh, we have um, Aram Andonyan, the journalist from Istanbul, himself, a deportee, who uh, who starts documenting um, the organized nature of the deportations and the massacres? So he wants to 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 show that uh, the state is responsible. Those are not uh, uh, you know events taking place in the provinces where tribes are massacring uh, Christian communities. No, he, he he documents to to prove um that this is a state-sponsored act of, of violence. Uh, we have Armenian refugees crossing to to the South Caucasus under Russian tsarist uh domination at the time and there too uh Armenians in Tiflis, Tbilisi today, in Baku, Armenian intellectuals, they start documenting uh um, what happened to these refugees, what, what they lost, uh, why they became refugees and so on. So we have very rich documentation in the archives of, uh, of Yerevan um, National Archives, State Archives today. Mm. And after, after this period, um, culminating in the 1923 Lausanne Treaty, in which we have the emergence of modern Turkey, and the end of any hopes of an Armenian homeland in, uh, in eastern, uh, to the east of Anatolia. Uh, we have um, the end of this period of uh, documentation uh, and instead we, we see that the Armenian communities are trying to reorganize themselves, the survivors in places like Aleppo, uh, Baghdad, uh, Beirut, Cairo, Marseille, uh, Athens, and so on. And Then we have a new kind of um, documentation. Uh, intellectuals start writing about the past, about what they lost, about the village life, about their, um, their community uh, in, in different towns and villages of, uh, of the Ottoman Empire, uh, which are lost, which are gone forever. Um, and, and also, uh, we have Armenian survivors writing about the experience of deportation and the massacres. But those, those books in the 1920s, 30s, and, and later stay within the community because the survivors have enormous difficulty to communicate with their environment, with their new environment. No one is interested in their plight anymore. And it's already extremely difficult to talk about such an experience, and it's Mm -hmm. even more difficult when the interest is lacking.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And then you have the whole industry of of people taking up, writing about it in the West and, and the reaction to that. One of the the one of the the, the points you make in uh, you talk about I I don't want to go through all the names, but you talk about a number of scholars and authors writing about the Armenian genocide and the backlash from the Turkish government, including efforts to essentially fund think tanks to discredit the idea, endowing various organizations with money that are that speak out against the genocide. This whole kind of intellectual debate. Uh, and trying to discredit conferences that are put on. I mean, for a long time, I thought that was very interesting. Of how you see how important, potentially, and at least, anyways, how ideas and scholarship can be to to changing people's minds.
1: Yes, uh, Turkey Turkish official policy was, as I said earlier, was to erase the memory not only of the genocide, but also the memory of the existence of Armenians, as well as Assyrians, Ponti Greeks, and so on, uh, by all kinds of state policies, by changing um, the language, the purifying so-called the Turkish language, getting rid of um, non-Turkic sounding uh, expressions, changing, I mean, censoring maps, uh, maps with geographic names. um, For example, um, historically, um, the Armenian uh, inhabited areas geographically are called Armenian Plateau. And this was censored, you know, systematically by by Turkey. Uh, In the book, I give an example how Swiss Air had a map in the 1960s and the Turkish ambassador in Switzerland uh, wrote a protest letter saying that um, you should change this 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 term, and Swiss air did change uh, armenian plateau to to whatever it was. so we have a state policy trying to erase the memory of uh, the victimized populations but then uh with the 1960 s with the revival of the Armenian movement calling for international attention, calling for justice, calling for reparations, Turkey could not keep silence anymore. And uh, as a result, it tried to uh, propagate its own view. And uh, this was done through financing uh, university chairs, think tanks, especially in the States, because of the importance of the States' Uh, Globally, the importance of Turkish-U.S. alliance from all perspectives, political, military, strategic, and so on. But also elsewhere. For example, in Israel, there was a conference in the the early 1980s in Tel Aviv uh, on on genocide, during which there were, uh, if if I remember right, four papers to talk about the Armenian genocide. And Turkey blackmailed Israel, even by threatening the well-being of Turkish Jewish citizens back in Turkey yeah. uh, to to get what it wanted, and very often Turkey managed to to get results, but on a long long run, this was a very um, you know, short-sighted view, and eventually, uh, Turkey today is, is is not able to. To, to, to preserve this, this discourse in academic circles today, um, in circles studying Ottoman history, in uh, among scholars studying genocide and Holocaust. Today, there's consensus about the Armenian genocide as genocide.
0: Yeah, and it, it also points to uh, another part of your book where you describe uh, the courageous efforts of, of, of Turkish scholars and activists uh, to raise the issue and and publish books and publish articles and hold conferences to discuss the issue. And what I didn't know, I didn't know this law actually existed. And I mean, I maybe heard rumors or but that they were actually enforcing a law against people called, you know, being an insult to Turkishness as a crime for raising the issue of, uh, of uh, Turkey's role or the Ottoman Empire's role, excuse me, in, in, in the genocide, I mean, insulting Turkishness as a crime.
1: One of the central questions I'm asking in this book is why did the Turkish society um, come back to the issue of the Ottoman Armenians, um, the genocide, and the the situation of the Armenians today? Why did this interest emerge after long decades of silence and indifference and forgetting? so the, the other side of this question is, how was it possible for the Turkish society to be indifferent, to forget a crime of this magnitude that happened in their society? How is it possible to be a Turkish uh, historian, to be a poet, to be a musician, to be whatever, uh, and, and to be indifferent, not to react, not to... Uh, not, to, not to notice that such a huge crime had taken place uh, in their midst it 's not easy to to give an answer to this question, the second one. How is it possible to 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 keep such a long silence? Um, and it 's a question I asked each time I interviewed um, you know, a Turkish person. Uh, My first question was, when was the first time that you came across the Armenian question? And for many, especially those who discovered the Armenian issue in the 1980s, uh, it came to them by an accident. For example, for Hassan Jemal, the journalist, author, the grandson of one of the three authors of the genocide, Jemal Pasha, he first became conscious about the Armenian issue during the decade of the Armenian terrorism. Um, another person I asked this question is Tanerak Cham. Tanerak Cham is the first Turkish scholar who uh, focused his work on the Armenian genocide. And it's, it's extremely interesting to see how he discovered the Armenian issue. He came to this topic while working on a project on torture in Turkey. And by doing research, he, he discovered that there were massive massacres in the Ottoman Empire, the Hamidian massacres against the Armenians and the Assyrians. And later he came across the genocide and he was shocked to discover this uh, while he was in exile in Hamburg in Germany working on such a research. And she told me, uh, it's incredible that we knew everything about the Russian Revolution, we knew everything about Vietnam and Cuba, but we did not know our own history. So there was really complete blackout on the Armenian past, on the Armenian genocide. And it's amazing to see how this this story came back to to be of public interest again in Turkey in the last 10, 15 years.
0: What role do you think that the terrorism played in it, if any, in in raising awareness by moving into the 1980s, into the 1990s? Is that, what? I mean, how do you place terrorism within the framework of your study? Before terrorism, I would like to mention
1: 1965. This was the 50th 50th commemoration of the genocide and Armenians in different uh, places Uh, organized mass demonstrations. So this was really the coming out of the Armenians from five decades of silence. So there were mass demonstrations organized in places like Beirut, in Paris, in New York, in Los Angeles, but also in Soviet Armenia. Um, And after this, Armenians became extremely active and mobilized, and they started demanding uh, international political elite organizations, uh, the UN, parliaments here and there, to recognize the genocide, and they were also asking for material and territorial uh, reparations. Now, for ten years, this political work gave no result, and uh, so from 1965 to 1975, we have. Uh, young Armenians radicalizing and saying that uh, non-violent political means gave no result. So what we have to do is to to use violence. There's no other way. And in my book, I have a chapter on the the decade of Armenian terrorism, and I show that this uh, Armenian terrorism had two sources of inspiration. One source was past Armenian violence, um, Armenian revolutionary parties, the Social Democrats and the Armenian Re- Revolutionary Federation used violence, including terrorism, in the Ottoman Empire. So uh, there's you know this, this memory which uh, is uh, preserved and celebrated among Armenian communities. So there's one uh, group of Armenian youth who drew on this past. But there's another one, Uh, Armenian activists in the Middle East, specifically in Lebanon, who were inspired by Palestinian guerrillas. Uh, For example, the Armenian Secret Army for Liberation of Armenia, they originate from uh, a person who was a member of uh, a Palestinian guerrilla group. And he uh, he was basically uh, in the orbit of. Yasser Arafat and other Palestinian guerrillas, who were uh, first in Jordan and later after 1970, uh, they, they moved to, to Lebanon. And Asala, this movement, was anchored in Lebanon. Um, this decade of terrorism initially put the Armenian question back into the uh, mediatic uh, agenda because they, they put bombs here and there, and they mainly targeted Turkish diplomats in the Middle East, in Europe, in North America. And each time they, uh, they kind of launched an, an operation, uh, there was an avalanche of uh, media reports following. Um, but later on, they could not follow this initial uh, success, mediatic success they gained, to, to move on to something more uh, substantial. And eventually, uh, this uh, movement collapsed uh, by uh, internal uh, strife, by internal divisions and internal assassinations. And um, well, the the legacy of this movement is that it attracted international attention, including It forced Turkey to call out of its silence. And it's in this period that Turkey tried to um, articulate counter arguments. And uh, Turkish diplomats started writing books, um, putting together the official Turkish uh, view on, on the past, on 1915, on the Armenian question, and negating that there was any planned genocide taking place and that there's any uh, possibility to compare what happened in the Ottoman Empire in 1915 with what happened uh, uh, in Europe with Nazi Germany with the Holocaust. So their their main kind of objective was to uh, diminish the the importance of the deportations and to, to portray it as a simple dislocation of dangerous population
0: yeah it's it's an it's an interesting part of the book and i know i've ta- i've taken a lot of your time, but I have so many questions. Your book raises so many issues uh, uh about uh about the Armenian genocide obviously, but just about history in general and and how the how the world operates one of the things and I'll tell this to listeners that you succeed in this book in doing beyond having a lot of information that that scholars will find valuable is you bring a human dimension to the book and you do this in a number of ways by talking about Issues of identity, forced conversions. You have chapter, uh, a chapter, uh, yeah, a chapter that goes through the, the issue of stolen property. You go on a trip looking at the ruins of churches of various cities to look at the, the trace of the uh, life that Armenians left behind that people don't always notice because it's it's been more or less obscured or purposely destroyed. I mean, you get a feel for people who are trying to figure out how to deal with their identity. Um, it's really a fascinating part of the book. that I, I don't think we can capture the full complexity of it in a short interview. But I was wondering if you'd like to say any more about how this book was in some ways, if, and I don't want to be too bold, but a, a personal journey for you. Um,
1: it, it was an incredible journey for me. But from the beginning, I was conscious that the material I had in front of me is huge and is extremely rich. And um, I wanted to put together this, this material uh, the best I could, and to do that, I, I thought that on the one hand, I should of course do scholarly research, go down to um, to the literature available to, to the even archival research in, in some cases, um, but I also wanted not to limit myself with only using um, the the official instruments of, of, of a historian. I also wanted to, um, to bring the sound and the color of uh, what's happening today. Uh, I wanted to make this a living narration, and not just about the past, but how the past is present with us. And to do that, I, I thought I should bring together um, scholarly research and writing with um narrations borrowed from uh, journalistic writing oral history interviews with people and 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 you know bringing forward some characters who played an important role and uh me being privileged to have the the opportunity to talk to these people and to to bring forward their personal- hi- histories and and stories but also um I have one chapter traveling uh, throughout Turkey, starting uh, in Istanbul and ending on the border with Armenia at the ruins of Ani. And for me, this, is, this, this chapter is, is titled uh, Memories of the Land. And for me, this is travel writing. So I wanted also to bring that to the, to the reader. And concerning the first chapter that uh, we already discussed about Randink. Uh, for me, the beginning of the of the of the book is like a detective story. There's an assassination, and by um, my investigation, uh, by writing this book, I want to identify the mystery behind the assassination. So this this for me a kind
0: mm-hmm. of um, yeah detective story. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 yeah. I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. It was it was just really good the issue of hidden Armenians and that kind of preoccupation with people trying to hide their identity or worried about the way they speak or various people who have Armenian backgrounds, who are afraid to admit that that they have uh, uh, come from Armenian people who may have become Islamic and, but speak with a certain dialect. I thought that was fascinating stuff.
1: Yes. And I wanted to, I mean, these, these are issues that, that are just emerging. So uh, well, today in the last In the last few years. um, We have more and more people um, coming out and saying, Listen, this is the story of my family for 100 years, we lived in silence. Uh, You know, we were forced to convert. My grandfather was a genocide survivor. He was adopted. He was, I don't know, converted. And, you know, we want to tell our story. And I met some of these people. And I wanted to uh, bring the experience of meeting them in the most vivid manner to the reader.
0: Absolutely. It's it's, it's well done. And another major, I'm going to make a a segue here, but one of the major themes in your book, and you, you touched on it a little bit earlier, is the relevance of this topic for the modern world, in particular, modern Turkey. You run through the book this idea that It's no accident in some ways that Turkey, the Turkish Republic has taken the attitude that it has because of its domestic politics. And you have this idea of the deep state and how the attitude of uh, the Turkish, the behavior of the Turkish government today with as far as how it functions and how it deals with the Armenian genocide are part of these larger issues about human rights and democracy in Turkey and how the, the, the Turkish Republic functions. I was wondering if you could say a bit more about that, that theme that you run through the book. Yes,
1: this is one of the central themes of, of the book. The question I'm asking what happens to a society in case there's a crime committed and uh, there's the pretension that there's no crime. Uh, so imagine Europe and its political culture in case Europe pretends that there was no Holocaust. And that this is a marginal story and it's not very important. Um, It's not the case in Europe, but it is the case uh, of the Middle East. In the Middle East, uh, up to now, uh, everyone thinks uh, that what happened in the First World War is of marginal importance. Um, And I wanted to see the consequences of such an attitude. And the question I'm asking, in case we pretend that this is of no importance, uh, we close our, our eyes, we silence the narratives, uh, what will survive, what will emerge from such a behavior? And when I started my research, I was very conscious that, uh, because I myself am Armenian, come from uh, a traditional Armenian background, so I grew up with, uh, with this experience, that Turkish negation is a continuous pain to the survivors. Uh, and that's why The Open Wounds, or the title of the book. Uh, but I was surprised to see how far this goes. Uh, first, by discovering that uh, the, suffering, the suffering of diaspora Armenians is uh, very relative compared to the suffering of those Armenians who were left behind, who were forced to convert, and who were forced to live on the land in silence, while everyone knew that uh, this person is the grandchild of a convert. And this person knew that in the village, who was the person who killed his you know, ancestors and took over uh, the lands and the property and the church and so on. So while, no, while this, this memory uh, was kept. It was silenced and emerged only at moments of conflict. So the pain these people uh, had to go through during one hundred years is, is is something I cannot imagine.
0: No, I, I can't either. I mean, I can't. Yeah, it's just it's something that. You know, a lot of people in this country and in other parts of the world have really have no reference point for fully understanding. And you do a really good job of bringing that out. Um, but I want to to link this with the the deep
1: state. Is that I I mm-hmm. I was surprised to discover while working on the book how relevant this experience is to Turkish society and to the Turkish political culture because yeah. uh, by silencing, uh, you know the act of genocide, this act didn't disappear. It kept on leaving its traces uh, in the society. And one of them, for example, is that uh, you take people who committed crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity, who are treated as heroes. So what happens (laughs) when you uh, shuffle Your uh, moral good and bad in such a way? Uh, What happens when you have a large uh, portion of the real estate in the country was stolen and redistributed? What happens to the uh, state of law, uh, rule of law in that country, when you have such a reality? Uh, What happens to uh, domestic violence when you have thousands and hundreds of thousands of Armenian girls and women? who were kidnapped, who were enslaved, and who became later mothers and grandmothers. So all all the the memory of this violence is still um, present in Turkish society. And what is most dramatic is that the secret organization which was set up and which was responsible for organizing the the genocide eventually survived. And it's, it's still there there's still this very strict structure within the Turkish state which has no legal presence but it has power uh concentrated in its hands and this is i think one of the major obstacles for the future democratization of turkey
0: yeah i I, the more i thought about it when i read this book is how this issue would would evolve and there you you, you talk about it in, in some ways uh in some parts of the book about the getting into the eu with this type of uh elephant in the room so to speak it seems like it's a big hurdle uh for the turkish republic to have on its hand if it wants to become a full normal and i use that term and with quotes on it uh member of the european community or the european union
1: uh Of course, um, European uh, aspirations of Turkey is is, is one issue, and it has been a very positive kind of source to stimulate Mm -hmm. reforms in Turkey and try to dismantle this secret organization, the deep state, within the Turkish state. I mean, European membership is one thing, but also the future of Turkey and Uh, A society respecting itself, respecting all of its uh, citizens uh, with all their diversity uh, and, uh, you know, guaranteeing their security, safety, having rule of law is very relevant to the discussion Mm we are having. Uh, You can't have rule of law and at the same time negate genocide and negate the fact that... um, Hundred years back, there was, you know, uh, a whole uh, people who were uh, assassinated and the pro- their property confiscated. Up to today, there are, uh, you know, fights, legal fights uh, going on around issues of property. For example, just recently, yeah. the Armenian Church uh, made a legal case trying to get back uh, something like two thousand five hundred churches and monasteries. Uh, And and the lands uh, belonging to those uh, churches that were taken over during the genocide. And they are still in Turkey.
0: Yeah, the Turkish Republic confiscated tons of stuff. One of the sections your book talks about the religious foundations being seized. Uh, Just incredible amounts of property.
1: Yes, and uh, the, the repression of the minorities... Uh, especially Armenians who survived in only Istanbul, went on. So by negating that Turkey was responsible uh, of committing this this act of ultimate violence, uh, they legitimated their policies and kept on uh, following on them. Um, And so there was a very important Armenian population in Istanbul Uh, By the way, Istanbul in 1914 uh, was nearly half uh, Christian, uh, Mm. being, you know, half of them being Greek, the other half being Armenian. So there was a very important Armenian community, uh, very well established, very rich, very prosperous. And the Kemalist state targeted them and wanted to dismantle uh, their economic role and to replace them with what they called a Muslim bourgeoisie. And uh, the confiscation of Armenian property, whether uh, land, uh, whether capital in, in in different forms, or whether uh, property belonging to churches and foundations, went on up to the 1980s. So this is this is incredible. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I often say that in the case of the Holocaust, we know when it ended. Uh, probably one symbolic. Uh, date is when the Soviet army uh, entered Auschwitz concentration camp. In the case of the Armenian genocide, we don't have such a date because no. we have only the, the beginning uh, traditionally commemorated on 24th of April when Armenian intellectuals were arrested in Istanbul, but we don't have an ending date. Yeah, it's
0: it's a tough issue. and as a way, it raises the, the point in the book, uh, and I think they're interrelated uh, sort of questions, that how would you characterize, and we've talked about it a little bit, but how would you characterize the efforts of the Turkish government to deal with uh, the issue of Armenians and the genocide, say, since the late 90s to today? And you you don't have to mention all of them, obviously, but you you, you describe a number of dialogue attempts and scholarship exchange attempts to try to reach some type of understanding between Armenia uh, and the Turkish Republic, and by extension, the, our, the Armenian community. How would, you, how would you characterize that, and what are the future prospects as we sit here in October 2015?
1: Um, since the 1980s, uh, with the emergence of the Armenian issue, uh, following the decade of terrorism, uh, Turkish officials tried to, uh, you know, come out with a strategy of how to deal with this issue, Um, but eventually didn't kind of bring any policy change. Up to the coming to power of the um, AKP, uh, the party of um, President Erdogan today, uh, which was in 2002, this made a break uh, by the fact that there was a new team uh, for the first time coming to power after the long decades of post-Atatürk elite preserving power. And AKP initially, when it came to power, it had the government, but uh, it felt that it can be always challenged by the deep state, by the military. And as a result, in the first few years, uh, Erdogan and his team, they were reformists. They they were very liberal. And uh, it is under those circumstances that we have the opening up of the debate uh, on the Armenian issue in Turkey. It, it was thanks to this uh, new hesitation, the, 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 the kind of dual power between uh, the Islamist government and, on the one side and the military, uh, nationalist, deep state on the other, that it was possible to have the 2005 uh, conference on genocide in Istanbul. Now, in the, in the last years, as uh, Erdogan um, kind of concentrated more and more power in his hands, especially after 2007, <clears throat> where he managed uh, to kind of uh, face the military and to subjugate them, um, today he has less and less um, kind of motivation To reform the system, because now he dominates the system. And as a result, we have less and less uh, change coming uh, from the political elite in power. Um, Well, Erdogan uh, changed the official discourse from what I described initially, nothing happened and it's their fault, to saying that Something has happened, we don't know very clearly what happened, but it, 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 you know, we, we should give more time to historians to, to, to work on this, so please don't intervene from outside. Uh, but also more and more characterizing what happened as civil war. So it's not a genocide, but it's a kind of uh, civil conflict between two parties, uh, Muslim Turks on the one side or Muslims on the one side and then Christian Armenians on the other uh this new discourse it's still denialist it it denies that there was genocide it denies uh what is the most important for me is um turkish responsibility state responsibility towards mm-hmm. what happened yeah that's
0: exactly what it is and what I, find, what I find interesting, too, in something that you said is that let's leave it to the historians to sort it out, and you raise a fundamental issue about the limits of taking that approach for a number of reasons, including the historians didn't do a great job of it, and the dangers of relying on that when the access to the archives for some of this information, especially in Turkey, is not always readily available. So I was wondering you would say more about why this idea of that you shouldn't just leave a question this important to a historian.
1: Yeah, I think the, the question, such questions are uh, larger than to, to leave just to specialists. You know, the mm-hmm. question whether uh, there was a genocide taking place in a society concerns not only historians, concerns everyone in, in a given But more than that, we have also seen that during the 20th century, we can have uh, historians serving the state and state yeah. uh, propaganda and state objectives so um, just to say that let's leave this to historians um, well history shows that it's not the best solution but also in, in a more political sense this argument uh, wants to uh, take the responsibility away from politicians well, I think politicians also have a responsibility as well as ordinary citizens, as well as lawyers and judges, as well as poets and whoever, um, when it comes to a crime of this magnitude. So I think that the, the argument is simply to, to silence the debate and not to um, kind of emphasize the importance of the historian in, 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 this, in this context.
0: Yeah, when I read that, it made me. It made me think of the argument: just let experts deal with it. Don't worry your pretty little head about it. Keep it on the bat on the, on the low burner instead of people taking control and forming themselves, debating. You know, bringing grabbing history by the you know the horns. That that's the message I got. It's like it's it's much easier if people don't raise the issue and just keep it in conferences behind closed doors. This argument has another
1: problem, which is that. Um well, we are talking about an event which took place 100 years ago. Do mm-hmm. we still need historians to research and to debate and to write and to reflect uh, in case after 100 years we are unable to decide uh, the, 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 the broad, general lines of, of what happened uh, you know, when we are talking about yeah. an event of this magnitude, deportation of um, nearly 2 million people confiscation of their property, massacres of, of uh, hundreds of thousands, in case an event of this magnitude we still need to, to, to reflect and to research and to, to, to work on, then
0: what is the use of history in general? Yeah. You're, you're preaching to the choir on that. I'm doing research. I'm in, a, in the process of researching and eventually writing articles and books about the transnational movement to bring about Baltic independence during the Cold War. And it's not the exact parallel, although the, the Baltics had terrible deportations and huge population losses. I'm not, you know, I wouldn't put it in the level of the genocide like we see with with uh, the, with the Turks. I mean, maybe you can make an argument for cultural genocide in the Baltics, but that's the same type of issue of how do, how do people bring attention to it, whether through scholarship, whether it's through protest, whether it's through inter- exchanges. How do you? get ideas out there for people to act on and react to. So I think that's a, it's an interesting uh, part of your book. Absolutely. And I, I, I'm sorry, I'm taking up so much of your time and you don't have to say a lot about this because we've been on quite uh, we've been talking for quite a long time, but another good part of your book, and I don't think this is that well known and I could be wrong of course, but you also bring uh, the issue of the Kurds and the subject of the relationship of Azerbaijan to the question of genocide and modern turkey Armenian uh, relations, which is fascinating uh, stuff to read, especially the Kurdish role in in the genocide and the in the, the whole relationship uh, uh, to to these issues and the, Azerbaij- uh, the azerbaijani turkey connection in terms of the how you mentioned the Azerbaijans portray themselves as victims a lot of the time Azerbaijanis I should say um, I was wondering if you could just maybe say something briefly about that about those issues. Uh, Yes, as I I, I
1: mentioned early on, um, my initial research has been on the Caucasus and conflicts in the Caucasus, and I was very conscious that um, past traumatic events, uh, genocide, silence, repressed, can be a source of um, tension, and it had played a role in the Karabakh conflict. Uh, What is interesting to see in in the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict around Karabakh is that uh, today we have a new phenomena emerging whereby uh, Azerbaijan uh, has taken more and more the most uh, hardline negationist denialist positions and Azerbaijani authorities, uh, thanks to their petrodollars, Azerbaijan is an oil rich country, is buying more and more influence within Turkey, media, academia, think tanks. Uh, So it it negates that there was Armenian genocide, while on the other hand, it uh, has uh, official policy to talk about Azerbaijani people being the victim of genocide organized by Armenians. And this genocide is very diffuse, is, is, is very kind of unclear, and basically, they attribute all uh, negative experiences in the last 200 years to Armenians. So it's, it's really um, fascinating to see the myth-making taking place with uh, state-sponsored museums, with state uh, issuing laws on the day of, Arme- uh, of Azerbaijani genocide, and, and so on, uh, monuments being constructed, uh so th- there's a kind of reversal of roles in the imagination of the azerbaijani ruling elite so this is fascinating and uh, we see the consequences of turkish denialism uh, kind of uh finding echoes in other places other corners of of this
0: region yeah it's, it's 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 great stuff and once again uh thank you for speaking with me and sharing your book with our listeners i've taken a lot of your time and. Uh, appreciate it. But I have one last question. And I was wondering if you could tell us perhaps a little bit more about what your future plans are, whether it's in, in writing or travel or anything.
1: Uh, oh, uh, my future plans is um, I'm focusing on a on a new book. I think um, um, my research on, on the current book, especially on the Ottoman 19th century the reforms, the failure of reforms, and then the radicalization uh, gave me new ideas about uh, rearticulating the modern history of uh, post-Ottoman Middle East, uh, which comprises Turkey, uh, the Kurds, but mainly the Arab countries. You know, looking at places like Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and so on. And uh, basically, the question I'm asking is. What are the historical roots of the current Shiite Sunni polarization and conflict and uh, why political Islam has become more and more reactionary and aggressive? And uh, I want to, to research the, the root causes of, of uh, those phenomena uh, by going back to 19th century Ottoman history.
0: That sounds great. We, we look forward to that. And once again, uh, thank you for speaking with me. Uh, I would just point out to the listeners, this is a great book for specialists and general leaders, readers excuse me, uh, alike, because it presents a lot of inf- scholarly information, but it also provides a human dimension, and it's a very easy, straightforward uh, book to read. And so I, I heartily recommend it. And before we sign off, I just I just thought of this as we were going through. Uh, There's I don't know how much you you get of American culture or or pay attention to it. We live in a bubble over here in the United States. But the issue of the Kardashians, uh, are you familiar with the Kardashians? Uh, I'm familiar uh, because
1: recently, I think just just a week before the centennial commemoration, uh, Kim Kardashian, she went to Armenia um i'm not sure for for, uh, for what, but she was very much in the media uh both in the states but also in the armenian media so i i, I noticed from from that perspective
0: yes uh the reason I mentioned they were there it was more publicity and i i, I mean i don't want to go too far, but I think they were trying to get back to their roots they didn't really tackle a lot of hard hitting political issues, but what it's interesting is it raises uh, by almost extension what you're at least a little part of what you're trying to do in the book about the lack of knowledge about the Armenian uh, genocide is most of the students that I teach, and this has been going on for years are convinced that the Kardashians are Latin American and they keep raising this issue that they're Latin American. And when I tell them they're Armenian, they really don't have any sense of what Armenia is. The Armenian genocide. I have to explain in the class how the, actually it's quite an amazing story of, of someone who, from I believe the early 1900s left during an era of persecution in the Ottoman Empire and found their way. I think it's uh, Kim Kardashian. I think it's her paternal uh, great grandfather came uh, to the United States. But it's 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 a way that I think in when I teach world history, I use the Kardashians as a way to raise the subject of the of the Armenian genocide. And it's just it's sad in a way how many Americans are convinced that the Kardashians are Latin American. And why so? Why do they think uh, they are Latin American? 'Cause they look and not one student explained to me just because they look Latin American, uh, no other yeah. issue. They did somewhat dark skin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean there's no I mean, they're they're not really thinking that hard about it. There's a lot of Latin American pop stars, so they're just part of that. That's as far as I can tell. Oh yeah. my poll's not my poll's not scientific. <laughs> so <laughs> so there's just my impressions from what I see in class talking to students uh when I teach world history. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, once again, thank you, and I wish you the best of luck down the line. Thank you very much.